Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Rob Warner, and today I'm joined, as always, by site publisher Chris Cartman, as well as reporters Mason Kern, Trevor Booth, and Jacob Rudner. Guys, how's everybody doing today? Doing great, Rob. Um, first podcast with all you guys of the year. Uh, we took a little bit of a hiatus there, but excited to be back and into a regular schedule and have a lot of things that we're going to get to. Yeah, first podcast of the decade, Chris, and uh, fellas, it's going to be a good one. I'm excited. Yeah, that's a good point, Mason. It feels like we were never gone. It's great to be back. <laughs> I'm, I'm just excited to be back with everybody being able to do the podcast. So this is this is exciting that we're back. Yeah, all of our fans are really excited that we're back, too, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, well, I think ASU basketball is excited to be back after its win against Arizona. 22-point comeback victory. That's the largest under head coach Bobby Hurley in his tenure with ASU. ASU is now 3-3, three and three, fifth-way tie in the Pac-12 uh, Twelve and seven overall, and territorial cup victory. Obviously, uh, big time win for a program uh, and a team that had been really kind of struggling after a tough start in conference play. Uh, what do you guys think enabled that comeback? And I mean, it looked like ASU had no chance early on in that game when they were down twenty-two. Well, I just think after what happened in Tucson, where ASU was blown out, and then people see the ASU's getting almost run out of the gym in the first half, that you think it's going to be a similar outcome, right? That's a normal inclination. But they made some really good adjustments early on in the game. Uh, Arizona was swarming the ASU's ball screens with uh, the ASU's bringing with Romello White or whoever, a bigger player at the, at the top. And there was really no answer because White would be diving to the hoop. They wouldn't be able to get the ball over the top to him. They couldn't split the double team. They couldn't dribble around it. And they weren't rotating the ball. Uh, so what happened was it ended up with a lot of dribbles around the perimeter. And AC wasn't getting quality shots, wasn't hitting perimeter shots. What happened in the second half uh, is they started going a lot more to the guard-to-guard ball screens that ended up with two defensive players sticking to the ball. And uh, Remy Martin did a very good job of getting the ball on pops by Rob Edwards or other players uh, for open shots from the perimeter. That really changed ASU's fortunes. And it should also be noted that ASU played pretty good on the defensive end throughout on-ball defense. They hit the glass pretty hard. The interior, what I noticed is that they did a good job of establishing position early on in the possessions at getting Arizona's post players off of the position that they wanted to be on the low block. And I think that that made them uncomfortable. And all of those things combined uh, fueled the the comeback by ASU. And of course, uh, probably the best atmosphere in Desert Financial Arena that we've seen this year had a big factor as well. Yeah, and I mean, echoing that, I think it was probably one of Bobby Hurley's best pure coaching games uh, in his tenure. Just just the fact that Chris said the guard-to-guard switch, they, they needed to get their shooters open, and they were getting double-teamed by Arizona's big men. And early in the first half, it seemed like ASU was really lackadaisical on defense. Nico Mannion had a stretch of like four three-pointers in a row, and, and Remy Martin said that his teammates were getting on him at halftime, that they got to defend better, especially on Mannion. But but just as a unit overall, Zeke Naji was, was bullying Romello White early. Um, Jalen Graham had to get some good minutes in, especially when Romello White uh, got into foul trouble. And then in the second half, um, when, when ASU ended up going on that 58-21 to 21 run to, to come back and, and inevitably win by one um, on the Alonzo Verge game winner, I mean, it, it really showed how – physical ace you can be even without Romello White. Jalen Graham had some great minutes, offensive rebounds, and and they didn't even have Jalen House 
for a large majority of this game um, because he's still still been dealing with concussion symptoms. And, I mean, that's a, a huge defensive presence. So the fact that they were able to kind of come together uh, in that second half and kind of limit the Arizona's possessions and their scoring possessions was, was a huge factor. And I think a point to touch on what you guys said, um, something that I saw on social media after the game is people that were comparing it to the game that was two years ago in Tempe when Arizona got off to a really hot start when they had um, DeAndre Ayton and Alonzo Trier. I think they went up by 20 in that game too, and how ASU was sort of able to come back. They didn't win that game two years ago, but they were able to win this one. And I think the fact that going back and thinking about that game, why ASU was able to come back, or at least there was some confidence that they could when Arizona was going on that run, is because they were such a potent offensive team that year, and they could put up 80 to 90 points and make it a game whenever this year's team has not shown the offensive capability or consistency to come back within that stretch and considering what Arizona did to them three weeks ago in Tucson it was like okay it, it didn't seem like they'd be able to put that together but this year's team really did it with defense as you touched on Mason I think they forced 18 Arizona turnovers in that game Nico Mannion being in foul trouble really helped they were able to kind of stretch what Arizona was um, able to do and, and um, interrupt some of their playmaking um, and they didn't play Max Hazard who um, that could be considered their best three-point shooter really in the second half as well so they really were able to clamp down on their offensive possessions and take away at a lot of the rotations that they were succeeding with earlier and Sean Miller was saying sorry to cut you off Mason that he took out Hazard because of the first half uh, the end of the right. first half taking a shot or, or trying to take a shot um, when the Arizona could just hold for the last shot and right. being very frustrated with him which came a week after he said he's trying to enable his players more and and like uh, give them positivity so it seemed like a like a questionable move considering what he had just said a week earlier about that. And it seemed like it really hurt a, uh, Arizona's offense in the second half. Yeah, and Max Hazard was really the story of Arizona's last week when they were able to sweep Colorado and Utah. They were talking about how he was able to come in and provide some depth that they didn't previously had and take some pressure off of their three-star freshman. And then going away from him in the second half, it forced a lot of those guys to make plays. And it's tough when you have your point guard in foul trouble and your big guy that you know that's who you're going to go to, especially since Chase Jeter was out of that game for him. And it was a much more consistent overall performance for for ASU offensively I mean Rob Edwards I know he went six of 16 but but really hit big shots when it mattered and he played really good defense too I mean Josh Green one of Arizona's self I mean star freshmen he had two points and both of them were on free throws he was 0 for 8 in the game and Rob Edwards was tasked with defending him for a majority of the game and Nico Manion only went 5 of 11 and most of that came in the first half like I mentioned so overall just ASU's defensive performance after allowing 43 first half points Arizona scores 65 total in the game. So that was huge. Yeah, I think very importantly for ASU, we saw players really lean into their roles on the team. And that's something that hasn't always been the case and that Bobby Hurley has really uh, voiced heavily as, as an issue that they need to remedy. And so when you see Tayshawn Cherry embracing fully, taking charges, hitting the glass, getting his hands on balls, deflections, you know, just being a pest. Mm -hmm. And you see other players, Alonzo Verge, he credited his on-ball defense, something that we probably haven't heard before. Um, that's what this team has been searching for, I think, is, yeah, okay, sometimes you're not going to shoot the ball well from three. Maybe you're not even going to take the, the, the quality shots uh, that you want to have and you need to move the ball better. But it takes guys really embracing other ways that they can help the team 
and uh, and then having that spread across your roster. And that's what we saw in that game. And so if, if ASU is going to parlay what happened on Saturday in Tempe against these upcoming games, Washington State Wednesday night, then, or then Washington after that, and they can get on some sort of a streak here, that's what's going to give this team a chance to push up in the Pac-12 standings and and maybe compete for its third straight NCAA tournament, which hasn't happened, by the way, uh, since 1961 to 1964 when they made four in a row at ASU. So so they're they're we we kind of follow the 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 odds and some of the projections that some of these forecast models have. ASU was 17% to make the tournament by team rankings, one of the ones that tracks this stuff before the win and jumped all the way to 40.4% immediately after that happened. So uh, it's going to take uh, it's going to take a lot more wins and, and probably uh, winning in some some games where ASU is not favored in order to uh, make it kind of all come to fruition because they, they put themselves in a, in a kind of a difficult situation 12 and 7 3 and 3 in the Pac-12 is not that great at the same time they're probably started the conference with the most difficult schedule of anybody when they had the three games on the road uh, against three of the better probably teams in the conference as far as like most difficult places to play so now they they have six games of their 12 remaining are at home um they have road games at winnable places, Washington State winnable, Cal winnable on the road. So they're going to probably need to get to at least 10 and 8 and I think probably 11 and 7 to have a realistic chance of making the tournament. So that makes clear that they probably need to win like 8 of their 12 games or something like that. And that's that's tough. They haven't won under Hurley uh, a road sweep in two games, right? So they need to pro- probably either win all the remaining games at home or find a way to get a road sweep somewhere in here, uh, I'm guessing, in order to put themselves in good position. Right, and they're going to have to take it one game at a time, obviously, with Washington State uh, on the docket for Wednesday. But I think it was really important that Alonzo Verge is the guy who hits the game winner against Arizona. I mean, that's such a confidence booster for a guy who has struggled offensively uh, in spurts this year, obviously uh, with the 40-plus point performance against St. Mary's, but, I mean, has struggled with consistency this year. And, I mean, the original play wasn't even drawn up for him, but the fact that Remy Martin and Rob Edwards trust him enough to, to end up getting him the ball and hitting the final possession was huge, especially just carrying momentum forward um, into every game now for the rest of the schedule. Yeah, um, guys, and what do you think this does sort of for the chances of the tournament? Chris, I know you just briefly touched on it, but like, what what can you guys predict uh, based on how they're playing right now and based on what Chris was saying, the schedule upcoming? Well, I think it's huge considering the fact that Arizona was the highest ranked team in the net, and I believe Ken Palm also. So from a number standpoint, that's a big one to get. Um, I know that eventually they've got a home game against Oregon. As Chris was mentioning, they're going to have to take a lot of these games, and that's a big one. They've got two games left with Washington, who I believe is still the only team to beat Baylor, the number one team ranked in the country right now. So they've got some opportunities there, but in terms of a number standpoint, that victory is huge and going forward as well. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be difficult. It helps that probably the most difficult beginning portion of their schedule is kind of over with and and they get to 500 they get to three and three um not the best place to be in the pac 12 right now obviously tied for fifth but now they have a bunch of winnable games like chris mentioned um if if they can take care of business at home and and then possibly get a road sweep or, or or get have some success on the road more so than they've had in the past then 
they have better chances, but it's going to be difficult. They're going to have to get at least one of these games in Washington. They probably you lose both of those games, and then you're three and five, and then you need to win like like almost all your games. And they lost it to Washington State at home last year. Yeah, that was a big loss. That was like their biggest loss of the year, probably last year. Outside of Princeton, probably. Well, yeah, yeah, and the conference. I meant, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So. We'll see. We'll see. It's hard. It's the thing about it, Rob, is it's hard to sort of predict right. that a like we've said like every time that ASU's kind of turned a corner, seemingly they've run into another corner, and and so in order to to get you know going into some some straightaway space where they can really stretch out their legs and run, they are going to have to you know take what they did against Arizona and build off of it by beating Washington State and then go into Washington feeling good about where they're at as a program. Right. And, and I think it also is, is really important that even if everything goes right and they, they get a bunch of these games, it's going to be really hard to put this team as an at-large bid. So you're probably looking at a bubble team at best, in my opinion. And that's what ASU's had to deal with the past uh, three years. And, and it's just a difficult position for the program and for the team to really know what to expect in the tournament. Um, but we'll have more on that uh, going forward. We're going to shift now to ASU baseball. Um, ASU baseball being a top 10 team. Uh, in the three biggest publication preseason polls, uh, number three in Baseball America. Uh, Jacob, you were out at uh, Media Day last week. Uh, what can you tell us about what you think about the team early on? Um, I, I think that the the talk of ASU's pitching being a lot better this year than it has been in years past is is absolutely true. They have a lot more consistently looking good pitchers across the top top to bottom of the pitching staff. The rotation looks like it might be better. Justin Fall, a transfer lefty, is probably going to be their Friday night starter this year. Uh, head coach Tracy Smith and, and new pitching coach Jason Kelly were pretty noncommittal when it came to what the rotation would be. Mm -hmm. They did say multiple times that it's still a very fluid situation and they haven't decided who would pitch where in the rotation. But they did say that Justin Fall and Tyler Thornton would be the top two pitchers in the rotation most likely. And then it's going to be a battle for the third spot in the rotation, which would include sophomore lefty Eric Tolman, uh, junior righty R.J. Dabovich, who's done a lot for his draft stock this year, especially with a very successful summer in the Cape Cod League, and then Boyd Vanderkoy. And, and people have seen Vanderkoy pitch in the past. It didn't go so well last year. He hasn't looked particularly good in the fall or in their scrimmage game that I was at after media day. Uh, the control is still not necessarily there. And he still does look like a two-pitch pitcher. I know he talked about that he was working on adding more pitches over the summer, and I didn't really see it. It was it was a lot of four-seam fastball, a lot of slider again, and neither of them were particularly successful. So I, I do think that Bennett Vanderkoy could be successful in a relief role if that's where he ends up playing. But but I think that the pitching staff as a whole is probably the biggest takeaway from media day. It, it, it looks a lot better. Yeah. And, and it's going to have to be if ASU is going to achieve anything close to what it's now being forecast to do. I think Kelly is one of the most important people that uh, is a part of ASU baseball at this point in time. And they're going to he's going to have to really take their staff a leap forward. Uh, and of course newcomers are always really critical players and especially when you get an impact pitcher i know that they they appear to think that they have one that's going to be moving right into their roster uh, immediately in fall and, and so whether or not that materializes 
whether or not they get uh, the type of improvement that they expect from Dabovich and others into this year, maybe even Vanderkoy, who has always seemed to have the arm talent but uh, hasn't been consistent, that's going to really determine it. Because I think what we can sort of bank on with ASU baseball is they're going to have one of the better lineups in, in, in the West, maybe even in the country. Uh, the power that they have, the, the, the ability to manufacture offense is going to be pretty impressive, uh, you would have to expect. So if they're able to pair that with, uh, pretty, with good starting pitching and a better bullpen, because their bullpen has been a, a, a big problem, in recent years, just not having enough arms that they could go to. Uh, I think those things are key. I don't know what to expect with it. Right now, it's really kind of just going off of what guys are predicted to be and what these coaches seem to think about what the capability is. I think that that's a very aggressive and kind of speculative ranking for ASU baseball, given what we've seen to this point under Tracy Smith. Um but I'm very interested to see if they're able to play to those expectations. And and one thing you mentioned about the bullpen needing to be a lot more successful this year if ASU wants to be a better team than it has been in years past under Tracy Smith. One luxury that they do have coming into this season is the surplus in starting pitching. Because the way that it was talked about during media day, they have five starting pitchers. And, and allowing those guys to work into the bullpen, especially if RJ Dabovich is going to be a part of the bullpen, which I talked about very briefly on the board, uh, that will be huge for ASU baseball. If they can move an arm like Dabovich into the bullpen, because that will provide a lot of stability towards the back end of the game. I definitely agree with that, but that's a rosy scenario. That's a very rosy scenario. And I think that you have to expect some of these pitchers to have a tough time uh, adjusting uh, to their roles and we haven't seen a lot of success in that in the past couple years even early in the season last year when ASU was getting into that massive lead the pitching wasn't what was doing it it was the offense that was carrying the team I think it's going to be interesting to see how long and how sustainable it is um, that Jason Kelly's pitchers are able to perform to pretty high expectations and and given what they're expected to do this year I would think you would be expecting three runs or less out of starters in at least five innings. Well, see, last year was kind of deceiving because they had a pretty uh, easier non-conference schedule relative to a lot of the top teams around the country. And so it sort of masked some of their pitching issues that became a lot clearer as this, as the season unfolded. And so to your point, Jacob, about they have, you know, quote unquote, five starters starting aren't pitchers. I don't know that even that has been demonstrated, right? Like that's what they think is the case. But the best teams, you know that they have at least two guys that are just lock lock up aces. And ASU doesn't really have that established in any way. That's sort of right. being projected to be the case. But um, they're like right now they have, you know, maybe like one really solid starter, another guy that they think is going to be a really solid starter. And then they have other guys that have a chance to be good starting pitchers, but it hasn't been validated. And I think that this top two spots in the rotation, like you just said, it's between two guys that haven't played at ASU before. It's going to be two starting pitchers who are transferring into the program. They're going to have to get used to playing as a part of a new program. They have a very fluid catching situation behind them, and and we'll talk about that in a second. But I, I do think that part of what was so that didn't go well for ASU last year 
is that they didn't have the numbers in pitching. And in college baseball, that goes a very long way. They had a very shallow bullpen last year that you essentially relied on four guys. That won't work. That This isn't professional baseball. You can't rely on four guys in a college baseball season. Guys get burnt out. They do have more arms. And so whether or not those guys will perform is, is one thing. But just having the numbers going into the season is a massive luxury in comparison to where they were last year as far as just pure numbers go. Yeah, it's a it's a luxury compared to last year, but it's not a luxury in college baseball is what I'm saying. So, no, not in college baseball. So, 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 so we're teams in college. And no. so, right, and so we're, we're calibrating to the expectations of a top 10, right. and I don't think that their pitching is going to be a top 10 pitching so they right. they're right. So they're gonna we'll see how they how well they do and if they really help their their offense. Now, on the catching side of things, as you you, you talked about there earlier, uh, they lost one of their you know catchers, not their starter, but one of their backups last October, I guess it was, and then their freshman that they enrolled departed before even playing uh, for you know this this semester for ASU baseball. And that put them in a situation where they have basically two catchers and uh, they're looking at moving another utility player who had been projected to play shortstop into a third role, right? Yeah, so so he Nathan Baez is the freshman that they've moved from shortstop into a catching role, and that has actually already been done. So he's he's officially a catcher. He's not listed that way on the roster, but all of the coaches who I spoke with during media day said that he is a catcher. He's our third catcher. All of the coaches said that the biggest surprise of the fall was was Nick Chima. And Nick Chima was ASU's third catcher last year. He was predominantly ASU's bullpen catcher. And then they basically said that he had a, a fall and a summer of improved opposite field hitting. His defense has been improved. Uh, ben Greenspan, ASU's catching coach and associate head coach, said that they worked with a couple of, of different people over the summer on Nick Chima's defense and they saw a lot of improvement in him so he is effectively ASU's second catcher behind Sam Ferry who was ASU's starter last year but that's a that's also kind of a tough situation to go into the season with where you really only have two legitimate catchers your third catcher has not caught ever and he openly said Nathan Baez openly said that it's a difficult transition he's never done this before he's still learning how to do it so you really only have two catchers going into the year. It's not what you want at the beginning of the year. No, that that's not what you want going into the year. And we're going to have lots more coverage um, on baseball upcoming, but um, for now that's going to wrap up this edition of the podcast. Most of our football conversation will be reserved for the premium podcast, which will be we will be putting out this week. We'll be talking a lot about the final official, official visit weekend before National Signing Day and how it affects ASU, how ASU is expected to finish this class. We'll talk about rankings uh, coming out, and we'll be discussing all of that. So we'll have a free podcast next week, too, after National Signing Day. Uh, but if you want a preview of all of that, make sure you get tuned in to the premium podcast. But right now, for publisher Chris Cartman and reporters Trevor Booth, Mason Kern, and Jacob Rudner, I'm your host, Rob Warner, saying so long, and thanks for tuning in. Akuna Matata.